Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Right. So we are doing the books of February 1966. Uh, The previous episode, we did five of these books. This episode, we are going to be doing Fantastic Four number 47, Strange Tales number 141, Tales of Suspense number 74, and Avengers number 25. When we began 1966, Steve, you promised us something and you failed to deliver in January. Are you going to deliver in February? I shall. <laughs> you shall. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, yes. We are going to deliver. Well, we'll keep that as a secret for later <laughs> if you haven't been paying attention. But yes, a, a momentous year has begun. All right. So yes, there's uh, a lot of big things that 1966 Marvel is remembered for. But right. there's one thing that Steve associates with it that we are about to. Uh, <laughs> Galactus? Sure. Wakanda? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, But this, this thing we will get to. All right. So Fantastic Four number 47, Beware the Hidden Land. And this is an interesting cover. This is not a typical Kirby cover in some ways, in that it really focuses on the setting more than it does on the characters in my humble opinion here uh i like it it's a good cover it's a nice change of pace but uh it really does strike me as being different from his usual mo yes i like it thing is standing on sort of a a natural stone bridge that is shattering underneath him there is a high-tech city below uh he is holding on to uh mr fantastic's hands while mr fantastic is stretching to let uh invisible woman down to the ground and johnny is flying around so uh it's a very action-packed cover but not in the way you usually expect from kirby yeah and we've got so many costumes super characters in this issue it's odd that none of them make it on the cover except for the fantastic four but uh, we just see their city but uh it's fine this is an actual panel from the issue that kirby liked and is uh has expanded to be a full cover and uh i think it's nice yeah so uh the credits in this one are attention pulitzer prize committee Story Stan Lee, Art Jack Kirby, inking Joe Sinna, lettering Artie Simak. So uh, I do not think the Pulitzer Prize Committee actually picked them this year, did they? No, they did not. But of course, okay. at the time, it was sort of a joke that a comic would ever win the Pulitzer Prize. But did I forget, did somebody eventually win the Pulitzer Prize? I think maybe some comic did, eventually won it. Did, did Mouse or something like that? Mouse may have won it. Mouse won something prestigious. I forget which one it was. Yeah. So we are picking up this jam-packed storyline where we left off, which is the Seeker had taken Dragon Man off with him through a big hole he had just made in the side of the Baxter building. Triton is left behind, suffocating in the air because he needs water to live. Yes, I looked it up. Mouse did win a Pulitzer Prize in 1992. Ah, Yes. So so at the time, an inherently hilarious thing to say that a comic would win the Pulitzer Prize, but it would eventually. (laughs) All right. So the first thing that you need to do is keep Triton from suffocating. Mr. Fantastic has the Invisible Woman encircle him in a force field, and then he fills the force field with a fire hose that's nearby. Um, I got to say, this is... And this is a fantastic issue, you know, still great, but 
just ruins the issues to have Sue not get any credit for doing these things. This happens twice in this issue. It is just unbearable. He says, throw an invisible force field around him. Hurry. And she says, but what good will that do, dear? And he says, I'll explain later, woman. Just do as I say. And then she is like, okay, I can't figure out anything. I'll go ahead and put a force field around him. And then he fills it up with a hose. Just unbearable. This is not in the art. There is nothing in the art to imply that she does not know what she's doing. In the art, she knows what she's doing. It is only in the writing that implies she doesn't. And it will happen again later this issue. It's unbearable. This is Stan ruining what Kirby is doing. It is It is just a shame. I, uh, I can't stand it. Yeah, and he really has uh, Reed treating Sue pretty badly in this yeah. issue. And that's part of the storytelling. I mean, that's supposed to be part of the character development that we see later in the issue, um, which I can appreciate what he's going for, but he didn't have to have Reed be such a dick to uh, his uh, still relatively newlywed wife. Um, at one point, she says in this whole uh, in this whole bit, I'm trying my best, Reed. No need to yell at me. So, you know, it's yeah. clear that even when he's not saying, do it, woman, that he's still raising his voice to her. Meanwhile, Thing and Dragon Man are fighting in the middle of the air. Well, Johnny's there, too. But they actually end up flying into Alicia's window, like where Alicia I, lives. The, the, by the sheer fight. coincidence. Yes, by sheer coincidence, she can actually hear Ben's voice as they're approaching while fighting. And he's yelling at her to get out. Like, you know, this is not safe. And she's like, but I want to be here with you and support you. And he's like, look, all I can do is try to protect you. And the way I can protect you right now is to get you out of here. And we are going to see him really getting towards a dark night of the soul that is going to develop over several issues here. But it's really, in some ways, ramping up in this one. The Seeker is making a little water tank to take Triton back with him. Uh, Reed is trying to stop them, but he is unable to. And at one point, this is another time when he's treating treating sue like crap he says to her stop sounding like a wife sue i still make all the decisions for this team a man's life may be at stake and it's just you know once again why that's just you know <laughs> you're getting a little harsh for this here reed puts a tracking device on the uh, vehicle that the seeker is taking back to the great refuge they all end up being back at the great refuge the uh, rest of the inhumans as well Maximus doesn't want to see them because he is not the rightful uh, ruler on the throne. Here we meet Maximus. As with Black Bolt, I've never been a huge fan of Maximus. He gets to wear some Kirby gear here, but for some reason it doesn't stick, and he never really has a visual thing going forward, and he doesn't have any powers. It's so weird that all the Inhumans have these amazing powers, and Maximus will occasionally have powers in the future, but doesn't have any powers in this issue. He just has his Atmo gun, which he chooses to use later. Not a big fan of Maximus as our new big bad of the Inhumans. Yeah, well, this crown he's wearing is certainly sufficiently bizarre. It is really interesting. One point in this issue, I forget where it is, uh, somebody says, and what power does Maximus have? And they're like, oh, you know, you shall never know or something like that. (laughs) I'm like, okay. And then they never tell us in this issue. And as you said, they kind of go back and forth on it. So we also see for the first time the alpha primitives. The Alpha Primitives are, once again, a somewhat troubling element of the Inhumans mythology. They are these unevolved ape-men-looking things. They're sort of like the mindless ones in Doctor Strange comics. 
right? But yes, they're or the faceless ones in Submariner comics, yes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess both of those things. But you know, they are essentially being kept by the Inhumans who are not Alpha Primitives, and that ends up being dealt with to some degree later in these books. But I'm. You know, still, like, yeah. why did you have to introduce that element? That's just not good. Great art on the top of page nine of the Alpha Primitives racing across the panel. Oh, yeah. That was later used in the official handbook to the Marvel Universe to illustrate their entry. Sinat looking absolutely gorgeous on uh, Kirby's art and giving it so much weight and dimensionality. And, th- I mean, and that is just a very Kirby panel. It's yes. <laughs> all right. So Black Bolt is able to easily take care of the Alpha Primitives with some help from the other Inhumans. And then Maximus at this point realizes that he is not going to be able to keep his crown by use of force. So he decides to go into cunning mode and uh, says, oh, welcome back. Now that you're back, I shall relinquish this crown back to you now that you're the rightful ruler, when clearly he considers himself to be the rightful ruler, but he will then work on that in the future. Well, first he tries to hang on to it, and he's like, Black Bolt, stand back. I command you. I am Monarch now. You must obey. Stop. Come no further. And Black Bolt then gets the crown back from him in the most uh, clever way possible. He walks up to him and takes it off his head and puts it on his own head. And just the <laughs> last panel of page 11 is just like, you know, what will Black Bolt do? What, you know, because again, Maximus has no powers. So, like, you know, will this be the fight for the ages on bottom of page 11? Nope. Black Bolt just says, yoink, taking that back. And that is the end of the fight. Uh, So on the top of page 12, we've got this three-panel sequence of Maximus sort of, you know, thinking about how he's going to try to spin this whole thing. And I've got to say, this is – I am very disappointed in how Sinnott handled these three panels. These – yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, The first panel there, the way the hair is inked in, there's like those two – kind of arcs that make kind of a butt shape and then those hairs sticking back from it but there's nothing it just looks like there should be something feathering some you know connecting those things in some way the next panel is a little better but not that much and then the third panel those eyes are pointing different directions he's wall-eyed in that one and i presume kirby didn't intend for him to be wall-eyed maybe he did but uh yeah no i found those uh three panels Quite disappointing specifically for the inking on them. So, uh, you know. You are spoiled. I think you're living in a land of so much synody goodness that you can't appreciate what you have anymore. I think those are perfectly fine panels. I don't find them wide. I think those are nice. Panels. Panel three on page 12? I don't think he looks wide. That, that, that right eye you know, is, looking, is looking to the right and the left eye is looking straight forward. I think he's weaselly, but I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think those eyes are acceptable. I can sort of see what you're saying about the hair, but uh, I don't have a problem with those eyes. I don't have a problem with these panels. I think they look great. Okay. Well, uh, you were wrong, and I now have no respect for you anymore. So, okay. <laughs> so then Black Bolt puts this uh, crown on his own head in a very dramatic-looking uh, panel that takes up two-thirds of a page. Uh, but all I'm thinking is, how does the tuning fork fit under that thing? Uh, (laughs) that's that's the first thing my brain goes to that did not occur to me that is true (laughs) how is that gonna fit it's gonna get crushed Uh, 
So uh, my favorite part of this issue is these next few pages uh, that have no action. They have not they're not a big battle scene. You're not, you know, learning any great, you know, shocking developments. But uh, we just get a ton of wonderful character work. They're flying, apparently, in a conventional jetliner in order to avoid attracting undue attention. How they end up landing that in a valley in the Andes, I'm not entirely sure. Another panel that makes it into the Marvel No Prize book because the location of the Inhumans Great Refuge changes from issue to issue. It will later be established to be in the Himalayas. Here it is in the Andes, what's considered later to be a No Prize-worthy thing. So as they're flying, at one point, Thing says, this must be what the TV ads mean by a fringe area. And I have no idea what that's referring to. TV ads? What were these ads for? What were they advertising? Right. For a fringe area. (laughs) I I, I have no clue. So uh, we find out that, meanwhile, Dragon Man has just been disposed with off-panel. They've given him to somebody who's taking him to a desert island sanctuary for examination under heavy sedation. So there goes Dragon Man. He's gone now. Uh, We didn't see what's going on. Sue is trying to cheer up the thing who clearly is not doing very well emotionally. He's saying, not a chance, lady. The only thing that'll do me any good is cutting out of this nutty combo for a while, trying to live like a human being. So, uh, which we will be getting after the Galactus storyline. This will end up paying off. But he is clearly in a very, he he is um, wallowing in pathos at the moment. Yes. No, you know, not unwarranted. Then Sue is reacting to having Reed talk uh, unkindly to her and yelling at her and calling her, hey, woman, uh, by saying, oh, you know what? The the honeymoon is clearly over. He's not as attracted to me anymore. I need to go make myself more attractive. That's the problem. So, uh, you know, these days that comes across as very unhealthy. (laughs) But at the time, I don't know, maybe it was considered conventional. I, I, I wasn't around then. We then get a fantastic exchange between Johnny and Sue while Sue is uh, trying to figure out how to restyle her hair on her own here. And she's talking to Johnny. She says, Johnny, how would you like it if I wore my hair in an upsweep? And Johnny says, that's from nowhere, sis. I dig the way Crystal messes her tresses. <laughs> and she yep. says, I should have known better than to ask a lovesick teenager. The sisters sure are strange animals. I'll bet even when I'm 50, you'll still be thinking I'm a teenager. She says, I can't help it, Mr. Storm. Blame our parents for letting me be born first. He says, hey, it's real cool that way. Covering your face as she's just combed all of her hair into her face. She says, very funny. So, um... I- I love this. <laughs> I absolutely love this sequence. It just feels so genuine and not like something that you would ever find in, you know, most other comics of the time. So anyway, they get to the Great yeah. Refuge. They somehow land this commercial jetliner uh, in a mysteriously flat part of the valley that they're in here. But then Sue is acting all petulant because nobody had noticed her new hairdo. So she goes and hides herself. Everybody starts freaking out because they're, you know, a continent away. And then she becomes visible again. It's like, and you still haven't told me how you like my hair. Okay, it's one thing for you to be like, look, you haven't been treating me right. I'm going to go ahead and do something about it. But it's another thing to do it this way. It's just uh, anyway, we then get the scene from the cover. 
where they end up falling down into the city where the Inhumans live, the Great Refuge. They show up. Crystal, of course, you know, is is uh, loving it that Johnny's back. Sue, again, saves everybody while they're falling using a force field cushion at the bottom. Once again, yeah. Reed has to tell her to do it. Uh, like, I think it's Johnny. Well, Johnny is like, they are falling to their death. And Johnny says, you're invisible force field, Sue, quick. And she says, I'm already using it, Johnny. Oh, okay, so good. It occurred to her own. Oh, wonderful. She says, I'm already using it, Johnny. Reed told me to form a cushion with it. It's like, no, no, <laughs> can anything ever be her idea? Can't she ever come? Oh, she is trying. She is going to die. Can't she at least come up with a way to save her own life? Like, <laughs> She's got such a cool power. It's so awesome in Kirby's art. Kirby's art shows her using her awesome power in an awesome way to save her entire team. That's great. And then you have to say, you have to have first Johnny tell her to do it. And then she says, oh, no, don't worry. Reed told me. Like, uh, it's awful. <laughs> they, they, they keep snatching defeat from the jaws of victory when it comes to this relationship here. So then they finally land and Crystal just comes running like, Johnny, Johnny. And Johnny's like, oh, Crystal. So uh, but then Black Bolt and Medusa step in and Karnak and everyone be like, oh, OK, hold off, you guys. This is not OK. Medusa says, stop all of you. Black Bolt does not speak, but I shall be his voice. He wishes no bloodshed. If you'll depart immediately and vow never to reveal what you've seen, he will spare your lives. Gorgon says, I like it not. Humans can never be trusted. And then Reed says, you've had your say. Now it's our turn. You can't stand hiding forever. Sooner or later, men will learn of your existence. But you think the outside world is your enemy. You're wrong. You've hidden all these years for nothing. All we want is a chance to talk to you, to make you realize that you and your people belong in the world of men. There's no reason for all of you to live outside of the human race. And I'm thinking... I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm like, Reed, I, have you ever met humans? <laughs> he's never read history from a non-colonialist view, I think. And he shows up. He's like, well, look, look you're all white. It'll be fine. <laughs> 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 um, anyway, Maximus then decides that he is going to use his so-called Atmo gun, uh, and the Atmo gun is some big device that is going to uh, do something to the atmosphere of the Earth that will cause some kind of vibration, which will kill all the humans, but leave all the inhumans uh, just fine, so they can then emerge from hiding and inherit the Earth. Yes. So, I like this issue. I mean, obviously, I was sort of gushing over parts of it there, but that whole sequence when they're flying in the plane uh, and how they're all interacting is just gold for me. Yes. My biggest problem with this issue is just that it doesn't wrap up. I mean, this storyline's been going on a long time. And next issue, we're going to get Silver Surfer and Galactus. So I don't want this to spill over into that. I wish everything had wrapped up here. And indeed, it wraps up fairly quickly in the next issue. My, obviously, my big problem, though, with this issue is just the way it was treated. It just, it's gotten to be too much for me. I've snapped. Yes. It's one thing to have the Fantastic Four treating her badly. It's one thing to have Reed treating her badly. And it's like, okay, this is a portrait of a bad marriage. But... To have her just not being kicking ass all on her own and to have her constantly being have to be told what to do, it's just, it's an unforced error. There is no reason to do that. You know, you've got, you've created a great superheroine. You've given her a great power. Just let her use it. Let her use her own mind for once. It is unbearable. 
But other than that, this is a great issue. The Inhumans are great. The Great yes. Refuge is great. I wish Maximus had a power, but everything other than that is working wonderfully. And the inks, I just am over the moon with the inks. Yes. Uh, well, as I said, I've got I've got uh, three panels where I have problems with the inks. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, no, I, I absolutely get all that stuff you're saying about Reed and Sue. And, you know, if we remember in those first several issues of Fantastic Four, she was very resourceful on her own. She's the one who basically defeated Dr. Doom, where she literally has her hands tied behind her back. She does not yet have her force field powers. All she has is invisibility, no use of her hands, and she's able to give Dr. Doom a pretty serious blow uh, that ends up winning the day, you know, so she has certainly been able to show that before. But yeah, as you, I, I like your term, an unforced error here. That can be an issue sometimes. And again, it's not in the art. There is nothing yeah. in the art uh, about it not being her idea to make that. The, the, the implication the there, script. the implication there is that it is not Kirby. It is Lee. Yeah. Right. Uh, so then uh, I'll just point out the final caption in this issue it says, thus, the fateful button is pressed and one of the most startlingly spectacular sagas of all time awaits you next issue to learn how truly magnificent a magazine can be. You must not dare to miss it. Enough said. This is one of those cases where Stan's <laughs> hyperbole is not hyperbole. because the next three issues of fantastic four are often considered the pinnacle of the marvel silver age (laughs) sometimes the hyperbole is not hyperbole yes all right let's go ahead and do strange tales number 141 we can see in the corner box that it's got nick fury agent of shield and dr strange but it only says nick fury agent of shield Operation Brain Blast, beginning of the strangest, most spectacular super menace ever to threaten Nick Fury and his agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I like this cover a lot. It's got, I like, this is, I think, a huge influence on the movie Minority Report, where you had sort of the three blind psychics hooked up to a government machine. I think that was influenced by this. The short story Minority Report had already been written at this point, right? Hmm. That's a good question. Had it been? I think it probably had been. And they had three psychics there. And the whole thing about the minority report was these three people were supposed to be able to tell the future. And if two of them agreed and one didn't, the disagreement one would go into a minority report as opposed to the main document. I'm guessing this came from Philip K. Dick. Oh, you think that Lear Kirby was being influenced by Philip K. Dick? That's yes. entirely possible. Um, so then we get Operation Rainbow and we start with a wonderful surprise, rapturously written by Stan Lee, resplendently drawn by Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby is doing full art on this book. He has been withdrawing from Marvel books one by one, and he has never, I think, done full art on an issue of Nick Fury. He's just been on layouts from the beginning. But here he is doing it, and even better surprise, wildly inked by Frank Ray, a.k.a. Frank Giacoya, who has been gone from the Marvel Universe for a while, or at least gone from the superhero books, and is back. He is one of Kirby's best inkers, and reluctantly lettered by Sam Rosen, we have one of the best Marvel art teams unexpectedly showing up in this book. I had remembered that Heck took over sometime around now, which is I'm not looking forward to at all. No, instead we get a couple issues of full-on, full-blown Kirby. It is wonderful. We get yet another case this month where 
we wrap up one storyline, a long running storyline halfway through the issue and then begin a new storyline before the issue ends, which I'm disappointed in. But we have the wrap up of the Hydra storyline. They are literally wrapping up. They are, I guess not literally wrapping up, but they are figuratively wrapping up all the goons. They then have to get through a door with an awesome little door shredding <laughs> device, which I love it. they brought with them. But they call uh, it a bazooka drill. But yeah, it's basically a diamond-tipped rotary carving thing that's really awesome. We found out last issue that Supreme Hydra was, in fact, the assistant to the CEO instead of the actual CEO. Then some Hydra goons come into the room, and he's like, oh, my personal guards, I'd forgotten about you. And they say, you cannot save yourself by pretense. You are not one of us. Imperial Hydra must have already escaped. Shoot this dolt and let us find our leader. And he says, you fools, I am Imperial Hydra. And they go, do you take us for children? Hydra was a giant of a man, massive, powerful. And he says, I wore padded robes, built up shoes. I did it to impress you. But they don't believe him. And so then they shoot him dead. And uh, then they go out the window uh, using magno boots, uh, using suction boots. And then Nick Fury and... Uh, Supreme Hydra's daughter come bursting in the room. She finds her father dead. They find vacuum soles. They find uh, wacky-looking shoes with vacuum soles. Also, I will point out in the middle of all this, Nick Fury has been shirtless throughout this entire issue so far, uh, very much like he would often end up being during World War II. But you know, now that he's heading a spy agency, he can still end up shirtless for a while. Yes. And so then he suddenly says, hey, daughter of Supreme Hydra, why don't you try on these vacuum sole suction boots and uh, try getting away in them? And she's like, uh, okay. <laughs> and she then goes out the window and runs away. Fury then won't let them shoot her because he likes her and he wants to let her get away. And then I would like more of a sense of like, what a big epic Hydra epic. Let's wrap it up and end the issue there. But nope, we begin a new storyline. Uh, there is a lovely cutaway view uh, showing how Nick Fury is able to take an underground flying saucer from Hydra HQ to where he is going. Well, you, 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 you know how much I love cutaway views. Yes. I was disappointed by this cutaway view. This cutaway view does not is not nearly as it's almost not worth it. You know, it's like so that whole Hydra base was just all connecting rooms on one long tunnel or something like that. It's you know, I would mm. like to see a big cavern down there with all sorts of multiple floors and different you know stuff but uh yeah anyway I, I just wanted to say i was a little disappointed by this also apparently that ship that's docked um near hydra base uh is a decoy ship so i guess it's just permanently attached to the dock so yeah. that you can then make it out the other side all right fine. you would think someone would notice that so then yes. again we cut to this thing it's fascinating that you think I assumed that this influenced the Minority Report movie. It's fascinating you think it was influenced by the Minority Report uh, short story. I tried Googling whether it had been published yet, but I couldn't find it quickly. Um, but we have these three psychics who are working for S.H.I.E.L.D. and they're all, they all have black um, blindfolds on as they sit hooked up to an ESP machine. Unlike in Minority Report the movie, they are all conventionally attractive. They summon Fury... Then they try attacking Fury with their ESP machines. We then, however, get to a ex-Shield agent who used to be an ESP Shield agent who is many miles away, who also receives uh, something from them. And this turns out to be Mentalo. So Mentalo will be a long-running character 
he will often be paired with the fixer. And indeed, he then sends out mental waves to the fixer, who, as with so many characters who we have discussed in this podcast, will eventually become a great character in the hands of Kurt Busiek in the Thunderbolts, um, but is, I forget his name. They don't say his name here. I just found it. Minority Report short story was written in 1956 or published in go. 1956. But would, but would Lear Kirby have known about it? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. We have the fixer. It's pretty cool. He is in prison. He comes up with a neat sci-fi way to escape from prison. What? I'm trying to remember the prisoner's real name. Oh, yeah. I don't know. You're Mr. Google. Google the fixer's <laughs> real name. Well, he, okay. Here's the thing about the fixer is I, for years, would actually get the two fixers confused. Because if you remember, it was the fixer who killed daredevil's father yes that's true because he would fix boxing matches so that i found quite confusing for a while i'm like how did this just like regular plain old gangster end up as this uh, gadget guy but uh then i later realized oh wait two completely different people that's fine paul norbert ebersall is his real name yes and he would eventually become techno in the thunderbolts so then he escapes from prison and he's going to meet up with Mento, and they are going to take on Fury together in a future issue. So I am disappointed we didn't get a full issue devoted to the wrap-up of the Hydra storyline, but I am ecstatic to have Kirby on full pencils and Giacoya inking him, and I like the new Esper storyline. I'm loving it, and this is Mento and Fixer seem like great new characters. And I'm loving the old storyline. I'm loving the new storyline. I just wish they didn't overlap. And then let me see if there was anything else that I had to say about this one here. The way that S.H.I.E.L.D. has decided to show Nick Fury about the new ESP division they've been working on is basically to have the Espers mentally attack (laughs) Nick Fury as he's returning to base. And then they put on this scramble helmet to protect him. And he's saying, scramble helmet? Alarm waves? You better start explaining, mister, while you still can. He says, it's our new ESP division, sir. They wanted to impress you with a demonstration. It's the biggest thing S.H.I.E.L.D.'s ever tried. We call it Operation Brain Blast. And Nick says, that's just a fancy name for... Mind reading. <laughs> I, I just love that that uh, that whole thing there. Yes. Okay. Should we go ahead and move on to the back of the book? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. Well, the back of the book, that first half of the book was great, but the second half of the book is even better. We've got the final conclusion, or we'll talk about how much is a conclusion, of the 12-issue Doctor Strange, Baron Mordo, Dormammu epic. So when I will go ahead and spoil that when I first read this story, it had been edited. I did not have a great enough appreciation of the wonderfulness of Steve Dicko when I was a child until I bought, not when they came out, but a couple years later in a quarter box at a convention, I bought Doctor Strange Classics Volume 1 through 4, where they reprinted this 12-issue storyline. However, I did not know at the time, I did not notice that this last story was only nine pages instead of ten. And they had cut out the bottom two rows of page nine and the middle row of page 10. And they had then drawn over part of the final panel. So they had made the storyline wrap up more definitively than it actually did. So I'll discuss that when we actually get there. But then, so first we have Baron Mordo is like, hey, Dormammu, aren't you glad I helped you and attacked 
Dr. Strange in the middle of your fair fight you were attempting to have with him? And Tormund's <laughs> like, no, dude, do you not understand anything <laughs> about fair fights? And banishes Baron Mordo. And then they, Dr. Strange is like, all right, let's get back to it. And they go back to their pincer battle. Uh, Clea is still looking on on TV, uh, not contributing, although I wish she was. And we have more pincer battle between Doctor Strange and Dormammu. And then Doctor Strange eventually wins the battle. Cool looking win when he um, binds Dormammu's wrist together and then puts pincer around his belly and throws him up in the air. And then, so then Doctor Strange, going into this battle, Doctor Strange, the last time he had battled Dormammu, he had said, I've defeated you. And now that I've won, I demand that you never come to my dimension again and demand that you leave Clea alone. And Dormammu said he would. Dormammu then later broke that promise. Strange had to come back to Dormammu's dimension, kick his ass again. And this time, all he says is, don't come to my dimension. And he asked for less than he asked for before. And he doesn't ask, don't do anything bad to Clea. And indeed, Dormammu turns around and does something bad to Clea. Like, Dr. Strange, at least ask for what you got last time. Like, he made you come back and beat his ass again. At least ask ask for more this time, dude. Don't ask for less. But uh, he goes ahead and Strange, I don't know if this is just a one-way TV that Clea's been watching, but Strange completely ignores her, takes the Ancient One home, and then Dormu shows up on TV on Earth, and it's like, by the way, you didn't tell me not to do anything to Clea this time, so I'm going to banish her to some nether dimension, and you can't help her. Now you know Dormu can never lose. And Strange says, bring her back, Dormu, don't make her pay for what I have done. Wait, wait. And Dormu says, be gone, Earthling, you begin to bore me. And Dormammu freaks out for a while. Strange is told by the Ancient One, oh, by the way, here's all these black growths on this globe of the Earth. There's all these things you have to deal with that you haven't been dealing with while you're away. And then in the original version of this comic I read, we have Doctor Strange says, I shall not fail. He goes off to do it and then comes home and is weary from what he has done. And he stands next to a big brazier or Razier, as I would have said when I was a kid. <laughs> and he's like, the time has come to shut my eyes, to seek respite in the shadow world of dreams. Thus, when I awake, I shall begin the struggle anew. However, I now find out there were nine panels that were cut, where while Dr. Strange was off dealing with these black things growing around the world, some other of Moro's goons, including the still unnamed Caecilius, come in and put a bomb in the brazier. They say, Dr. Strange can never be fooled by a black magic trap, but a simple bomb with no magical qualities may completely escape his notice. And they put it in the brazier, and they are about to set it off. When Dr. Strange comes back, and he is sort of feeling weary standing by the brazier, we then see a little cutaway inside the brazier with the bomb that is about to go off. And it says, as surely as our imminent listens, we shall return next issue. So it turns out, that unlike what I originally read, this is actually another cliffhanger. So we don't, it would have been nice to get, I, I prefer the version I originally read. This has been a 12-issue storyline. Let us <laughs> wrap it up. Um, I mean, I suppose it's fine. You know, they had to sell comics every month. They wanted to bring people back. I don't mind that the storyline has a sort of a epilogue to it. But I read this story over and over again once I got it and realized how great Dicko was and how great Dr. Strange was. And it's still very weird to me to find out that there was a missing page. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's good to 
wrap up this, as you pointed out, very epic storyline. Yeah, I mean, I basically I co-sign on everything you said. <laughs> I don't really have much more to add, except you had said a few issues ago that the hermit who was guarding the ancient one had been, uh, you know, really deserved a name by now with all the work that he had done. They give him a name in this issue. Cloak of Levitation returns moments later, bringing with it Hamir the Hermit, the ancient one's faithful attendant. And the ancient one addresses him as Hamir in uh, in that panel. So um, good, he finally was uh, given the dignity of an actual name. Yes, after many many appearances. So yes, that is this issue one of Marvel's all time great epics. I love that it that Dormammu is wants to do it all physically, and I think that the pincer battle is great and it is all wonderful. I think it is a shame that Strange forgot to ask. For Clea to be, and this time Clea actually helped him. <laughs> Clea actually actually got herself in trouble helping Doctor Strange this time. But Strange does at least come to regret it, and then we'll spend the rest of Ditko's run on the book trying to settle things once and for all with Dormammu and rescue Clea. So that is coming soon. I love that we're still going to get more Dormammu and Clea goodness, but I wish we had gotten a bit more of a rest at the end of this issue. Sure. I went ahead and found my digital files of those Doctor Strange classics for the first time in a long time, and it's fascinating to look at them there after having read them here. And the recoloring was really interesting that they did. But also the covers are great, where the covers were done by John Byrne and Al Milgram. I remember those. I'm not a big fan of Milgram sinking, and I would consider it a waste to have Milgram ink burn. But the combo of them is fantastic. If you have only read these in the actual issues, then I recommend you check out the gorgeous, four gorgeous front and back covers that Byrne and Milgram did for the Dark Strange Classics run in the late 80s. Okay, so let's move on to Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America. Uh, Captain America gets the entire cover. The Final Sleep is the title they share on here. And we see a very Kirby-looking Captain America uh, charging towards us, while in the background we have the three sleepers put together. There's going to be a big head added to it. Destroying planet Earth. Yes. Poor planet Earth. Poor planet Earth. However, we begin the issue with Iron Man. Story as only the fabulous Stan Lee can tell it. Art as only the fantastic Adam Austin can draw it. Again, Gene Colan. Inking as only the flamboyant Gary Michaels can delineate it. Again, Jack Abel. Uh, And then lettering as only the frantic Artie Symek can scribble it. So in the previous issue, we had Iron Man fighting the Black Knight in one of the many, many abandoned castles that surround the New York metropolitan area. And uh, the police had come in and wrapped up the Black Knight, but assume that Iron Man has gone on to whatever he's doing next and do not realize that he is dying in the next room. Iron Man is able to send out a distress call, which uh, just happens to be heard by Pepper, which is good because that's all the power he had. She goes out and takes one of Tony Stark's sports cars to go drive out to the address that she was given. Once again, you were talking about how the art looks in here with Jack Abel inking Gene uh, Gene Colan. It really is just fantastic (laughs) page three especially those bottom two panels with the sports car driving towards us with the headlights shining into the darkness and the next one that has the view from the turrets of the castle down at the approaching uh, car 
And uh, for that matter, the first panel in uh, page four with her getting out of the car towards the castle, the texturing and the shading, this really gets across a lot of what Colin does that is very, very difficult for inkers to bring out. The sort of variations of darkness, the sort of shading of things. I mean, this isn't quite Tom Palmer, who is the master of inking Colin, but this is really good. <laughs> no, you would just read somewhere and you would go like, whoever this Adam Austin guy is, he sucks. Yeah. And just not the case here. This is, right. you realize, oh, he is actually a good penciler. Yeah, well, as I said the first time around when I saw Adam Austin, and I was like, I don't know whether this guy sucks or whether he's just being really, really ruined by Coletta. And then I found out it was Gene Cole, and I'm like, well, I guess we have our answer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Pepper comes into the castle, finds him nearly dying, and she says, I can't lift you in that armor, but I'll drag you across the floor. It's like, would Pepper be able to lift even Tony Stark, much less with the iron armor? Maybe, I guess. <laughs> he gets she gets him to the car and then he's able to get his little uh, uh, car plug adapter like we are all used to using these days. It's like my phone's about to die. Let me get to the car and get it plugged in. Uh, and I'm guessing that he has the very luxurious two amp adapter rather than just the one amp one to yes. keep him alive a little bit there she gets him back to the uh, factory which he insists on don't take me to a hospital i need to get to the factory and he's able to plug himself in and get enough energy that he's not in immediate danger he could still use some more but we have to keep him in a little bit of peril for the next bit of the adventure you've been passing over her thought balloons as she says this completely different from how she felt in the past he says if yes. he's in there if he's still alive i'll make it up to him i'll find some way to make him forgive me for distrusting him in the past, for thinking he was trying to harm Tony Stark. So in the past, she hated Iron Man, who she thought yes. had killed Tony Stark. Then she says, whoever he may really be, whatever features are hidden behind his mask, whatever identity that mighty armor conceals, it's Iron Man I love. I realized that at last. So this is a huge turning point in this trip. She has decided that not only is Iron Man not a bad guy, that she loves Iron Man. And so now we have, she no longer loves Tony Stark. She loves Iron Man instead. We've got a classic Rose Lane style love triangle. This is a new twist. I mean, she's a woman. She has to love somebody. So now that she no exactly. longer loves Tony, she has to love Iron Man. Yes. He gets a call from Senator Byrd, you know, threatening to get a subpoena to go up and take a look at the factory. See, that doesn't pay off now, though, I don't think. No, that um, has nothing yeah, to do no. with anything else in this right, issue. Right, it's just sort of apropos of nothing. It's like, you could just leave that till next issue. You don't need to seed that now, necessarily. But he does find out that they are going to try to revive Happy, who was on death's door, from the whole Titanium Man battle where he was getting Tony Stark, that gizmo that he needed, and yada, yada, yada. So he is still on death's door. And uh, they are going to use an experimental machine made by Tony Stark called the Enervator to try and help revive him. It's never had any clinical trials of any sort, but we're just going to use it on Happy Hogan. <laughs> and they actually yes. specify it's never been, gone through any testing whatsoever. Seems that Stark is the only one who recognizes that this is not a good idea. <laughs> it's like, yes. dude, we haven't tested that. What? Uh, you can't do that. And indeed, the innervator turns him into something that looks like a uh, cross between a, the Watcher and Frankenstein. 
Yeah. And uh, he turned and they refer to him in this guise as the freak. And he suddenly has super strength. He looks like a big monster and he starts breaking out of the hospital. Iron Man shows up to try to subdue him, but he is not able to. And at the end of the issue, we are left with uh, the freak, a.k.a. Happy Hogan, on the run with Iron Man in pursuit. Yep. Um, yeah, the art, as I said, uh, this is it's wonderful to finally see Gene Colan in a way that communicates what makes Gene Colan great. I, I love the splash page on page eight where they've got Happy Hogan on the operating table with the innervator pointing at him. I love yes. like all the other doctors who are around just all seem to have some personality and some character to them. I do notice that the little control panel for the innervator looks almost identical to the control panels that <laughs> Submariner was using on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, Gene Colin has one device in his house and he uses it for his hi-fi system at home or something like that. And he uses it as the model for everything and every issue. Yes, yes. And it, uh, he uses, uh, you know, Radio Shack ammeters for just, you know, needle ammeters there for just about anything. Yes. Yes. So uh, overall, I'm I'm not a big fan of the freak who we're going to be dealing with in the next issue or two. And the whole thing about Pepper now suddenly deciding she's in love with Iron Man is a little bit odd. But uh, I'm, I, I will take it all for the, uh, the art that we get in this issue. Yep, I'd agree. Yep, good art. Okay, story. The freak is a little bit silly. And Pepper being in love with Iron Man is a little silly. But Pepper just looks so great under Colin's pencil and Abel's pen. And uh, especially at the bottom of page six, she has a beautiful face, has so much character to her. And it is the Colin, you know, as we've said before, the very first comic we ever read was a Colin issue. Yep. We have a special affection for him. And it is great to finally get to see why that is after suffering through all those Submariner comics. So looking at my notes, I had one more thing I meant to mention. On page 11, I think I've mentioned how, you know, yes, we've talked about our, you know, we have we have liked Colin's work for as long as we have liked comic books, right? Both of yes. us have. Um, however, as I'm going back and reading this with more of a critical eye, there are a few bad habits that he has, in my personal opinion, uh, that are jumping out at me a little bit more. So on page 11... I think I've talked about this whole thing with like randomly odd panel borders. And this is a good example of what I'm talking about. On page 11, there is no reason whatsoever that he couldn't have moved that vertical panel border on the right to align between the top and the bottom. Uh, So what we have, just to describe to the reader, if you do not have the comics in front of you, which I assume you don't, you're probably washing the dishes like I am So (laughs) when I listen to podcasts. So uh, the top two panels are side by side. We've got a vertical divider. Then the uh, although the second panel is taller than the first one, that one kind of makes sense in the way he's he's showing things here. But then in the bottom tier of panels, the border between the second and third panel and the bottom tier is shifted over to the right by about the width of a panel gutter. I just don't like that. I am perfectly fine with people manipulating panels in ways that help tell the story. 
this does not seem to be what Gene Colan is doing when he does these things. This does oh, not I think seem he's to be doing it story. intentionally. I think he finds it a way to make things more lively. He does the same thing on page nine. I think that it's intentional. I think he is trying to do something more dynamic and thinks it's more dynamic. I agree. If I were him, I wouldn't do it. But he does it on both pages nine and 11. He likes it. I have no problem with it. Okay, yeah, it, it clearly bothers me more than it bothers you. But um, yeah. as I said, though, we're getting to see the things that make Colin great, yes. which uh, I love. Okay. So meanwhile, Captain America, the final sleep. Are you ready, Matt? Are you ready for what is special about 1966? Because it arrives on this first page. Yes, it is wonderful. <laughs> I am so happy for you. I know this means a lot to you. Here so, we go. Yes, here we go. Captain America is has a very dramatic panel on the first, and I will get to the credits in a moment. But I want to I want to get to this first. So <laughs> Captain America is jumping towards us in a very dynamic uh, splash page, and he has finally reached the NATO base, which he was going to get to, and then forgot about, and then remembered again uh, to defeat the sleepers. But the soldiers at the NATO base are saying, "Look, someone crashed through security." Another one says. It's Captain America. The first one says, I don't care if he's soupy sails. We got to stop him. So we are going to see a lot of soupy sales references over the next few months. Yes. <laughs> now, so I presume this lines up with when he became notorious for telling kids on his kids show to go and find their parents wallets and take a $20 bill out and mail it to him. Yes. So which which apparently is what sort of made him famous uh i mainly know him from things like hollywood squares when i was a kid in the late 70s and early 80s along with rich little and you know various other people who uh, i did not know why they were famous but they kind of were for some reason i'm looking them up now i always get soupy sales mixed up with sid caesar for obvious reasons both tv Uh. hosts of the 1950s and 60s who had alliterative sounding names but Yes, yeah, Soupy Sales hosted a kids' show that was originally called Lunch with Soupy Sales, and then it was eventually called the Soupy Sales Show. Okay, and I'm looking at him here. Yes, okay. Real name, Milton Suppman. Yes, uh, so Suppman became Soupy, Soupy Sales. Um, uh, well, appa- apparently, so I, I did read about this at one point in the past, that um, his, he was one of a uh, family of many kids, and they gave all of their kids nicknames like Hambone. It says here on Wikipedia, his older brothers had been nicknamed Hambone and Chickenbone. Milton right. was dubbed Soupbone, which was later sur- shortened to Soupy. So, yes, he he had this children's show and there was this one time when he. T- yeah. OK. Um, so uh, I'm guessing that had happened right at the beginning, right at the end of 1965. <laughs> yes. So he was a household word among the young folks, especially in New York City. All right. So we're still trying to defeat the sleepers, the sleepers being these waiting engines of destruction that the Red Skull left for in case the Third Reich was defeated. So we thought that these sleepers were supposed to reconquer the world and bring about the final belated victory of the Third Reich. And I was thinking, well, why didn't they just use them to not lose the war? This makes no sense. Well, it turns out this is the Red Skull's nihilistic wish to just destroy everybody, to just kill everybody and bring about the end of humanity as revenge for not allowing Nazism to be triumphant. So they're figuring out that there has to be a third part that is going to join these things. 
agent who uh, releases the third sleeper uh, actually just dies in the act of doing so because it looks like it was designed that way. Like, oh, good, you did the thing I wanted you to do. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't make this to where anyone would live to do that. That's, <laughs> yes. you know, that's, uh, but thanks, thanks for your service. So it's a big, like, red skull looking craft that then attaches itself to the top of the other two sleepers so they are now a uh, whole unit and then <laughs> captain america is just saying captain america is worried about this bomb and then you know one of the soldiers says or soldiers or air force or nato or whatever it is says uh, even if you're right what can one bomb do against all our armed might captain america says I've just remembered something, sir. The Red Skull always threatened that if Nazism didn't conquer the world, he would use its power to destroy all of the Earth. And it's again, with one bomb? How? As I've tried not to think of it, but I've always suspected the answer. The Sleeper has the power to, of flight, as well as enough force rays to fend off almost any position. This means it has the power to reach whatever objective it was programmed for. Since attaining linkage, it has been heading on a course due north. What if its ultimate goal is the North Pole itself? Think of the awesome possibilities. What awesome possibilities, Cap? Once over the pole, it could begin a power dive, its final death dive, with its force rays blasting a path virtually down to the Earth's core. Why this needs to be in the North Pole, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. But then it would get down to the Earth's core and make the entire Earth blow up. <laughs> One of the soldiers yes. says, but that's only a wild guess. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it is. That's only a wild guess. So, but that's what they're now acting on. They're now acting on the idea that this is thing is going to blow up the entire Earth. There's no reason not to destroy the sleeper. He's just going like, let's imagine a really, really good reason for destroying the sleeper. We already have a good reason. We've got perfectly <laughs> good reasons to destroy it. But who knows? Maybe we need, maybe this is something we really, really need to do. Captain America says, you know, when, when the soldiers try to be like, ah, oh, that seems like kind of a wild idea. And uh, Captain America says, I can't be sure, but do we dare shut our eyes to the grim possibility? Which just reminds me of every moral panic ever. It's like, yeah. yes, but think of the children. And it's like, yeah, but that's not, we should constantly, oh, okay. So, um, as I always say on You're Wrong About uh, the Great Moral Panic podcast, they're coming to the suburbs next. Yes. The, the, the sleeper <laughs> is coming to the suburbs next. So Captain America has uh, the NATO plane fly him right over the sleepers and he jumps out with no parachute to jump onto the big head uh, with a flamethrower. No, so that is not true. Thrower. He he does not jump out with no parachute. He jumps out with a parachute. He just hasn't used it yet because he is oh. – uh, they find him close enough that he can just jump out on onto the head. But uh, he has a parachute on. That's right. Which, and he does end up using it. I, I just I just but, saw this and I'm like, clearly he doesn't have a parachute, but <laughs> I, I guess he does. Yes, and he ends up using it on the next page. For the third time this episode, I will be mentioning Marvel No Prize book because this is yet another case where these panels will end up in the Marvel No Prize book. Because next issue, so this is yet another case where we, this is, as opposed to the other cases this month, this issue does wrap up this massive multi-issue storyline in a very satisfactory ending. We had, he gives he blows up the sleeper, he gives a little speech, and that is the end. However, next issue, they pretend that it was a cliffhanger, because next issue, when the next issue begins, he has no parachute. He is falling off the sleeper <laughs> to his death. <laughs> and, and okay. Then, 
<laughs> and as they point out in the Marvel No Prize book, nope, he had a parachute. He is comfortably parachuting to the ground at the end of this issue as he is giving his speech. Kirby changed his mind next issue and says, nope, it would have been better if I had left him plummeting to his death without a parachute. So I, I should mention that the uh, that Captain America had this flamethrower and set it up on the combo sleeper in a way that it was just going to run out all of its uh, flame onto a particular part, and then that was going to destroy the thing. Personally, I actually found this page to be a little anticlimactic. I don't know. It, it's There's something about it that just see an explosion and then a bunch of dark clouds and then some other dark clouds, and that's it. I, I don't know. This seems like I could have used a little something more, but yeah, um, I it's, agree. It's anticlimactic. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually I know that we've gone back and forth on either of our opinions on Tuska. Tuska working over Kirby's uh, layouts. I really like the art in this issue. I'm wondering what I think you think. It's okay. I think it's okay. I don't like the splash page at all. So yeah, we should say Blazing Story, Stanley, Burning Layouts, Jack Kirby, Blistering Artwork, George Cheska, so he's doing finished pencils and inks. Uh, the first page of Captain America leaping out of this seems like a perfectly good Kirby layout that Tuska is failing to make come to life. I'm not a fan of the penciling or inking that Tuska is doing. I'm not a big fan of the art in this issue. I don't like the look of the sleepers. I think the reason why the finale, as you say, is anticlimactic is because Tuska is not making it dramatic enough the way he blows up the sleeper. I see that. But, I mean, I really, uh, you're talking how much you don't like that splash page at the beginning. Um, I really like some of the soldiers' faces. I'm, I really like some of the character that he brings into that. I like some of the texture that he's using throughout. When Captain America has the flamethrower and he's using that, there's a really kind of unique style that Tuska is bringing to what the flame looks like coming out of the flamethrower that uh, I, I find to be a really interesting choice that I like. So it uh, sounds yeah. like I liked the art in this issue better than you did, but that is fair. That's why we talk about these things. Yeah, I think you liked it more than I. I agree. I do like the flames. Whenever I say the word flames, I always hear uh, the guys from Mystery Science Theater 3000 jump into my head and say, Gamera craves the creamy taste of flames. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I I didn't watch as much uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 as I probably should have. But uh, Oh, I didn't I'll... either. I just, I, I never watched that episode. Somehow that line just got to me. <laughs> Somehow. I think it was just like in an ad for Mystery Science Theater 3000 or something. I never watched one of the Gamera episodes, but somehow the, the line, Gamera craves the creamy taste of flames, stuck in my head. I don't know how. Okay. okay, well, let's move on to a relatively silly issue of Avengers, which will be handled by you. Yes, uh, we will conclude this month with the Avengers number 25, Enter Doctor Doom, in this great issue. Don't miss the brief guest appearance of the Fantastic Four. So we have a nice Kirby cover. Uh, unfortunately, it's the only Kirby we're going to get as Doctor Doom looms over the Avengers. We then get, unfortunately, on the inside, created by the pride of Marvel's bullpen, Stanley writer, Don Heck, penciler, Dick Ayers, anchor. Sam Rosen letterer for you, the pride of Marvel's fandom. So the Avengers are still watching, still wondering what happened to Kang and Rafona. Dr. Doom is watching them. Dr. Doom is planning against them. We then get <laughs> the first of many, many times in Avengers history that people are dicking around with Pietro and Wanda and making them think they know who their parents are when they don't. And this will happen over and over again, where Pietro and Wanda get false information about who their parents are. In this case, Dr. Doom sends some information saying, your parents are in Latveria. So then 
the Avengers, idiotically, go to Latveria to all in their civilian identities. They go to Latveria to help Pietro and Wanda find their parents. And then as they say, as they arrive, they're all put in jail immediately. And Ca- and Steve Rogers, not Captain America, Steve Rogers says, in all the excitement, none of us stop to ask, who is the ruler of Latveria? And I've just realized the answer. And then Hawkeye says, suffering cats. You're right. This is Dr. Doom's pocket kingdom. That's why they arrested us. It was all a trap. So then they escape from the prison, but then Dr. Doom covers his entire kingdom, which this is the first time we've seen how big Latveria is. It's really small. It is one little village and surrounded by four mountains. It looks like it's about the size of Monaco, uh, basically. Or and This you is know. smaller than Monaco. This is super small. This is a little village. This is, I mean, you can count the rooftops in this picture of, you know, I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> well, that, 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 that plastid dome or whatever they're calling it does go out. It looks like over a couple of other little valleys. There might be some other villages over there. Who knows? I will point out that the uh, lever that Dr. Doom has to pull to deploy this big dome, Don Heck could have chosen a better angle to show uh, <laughs> him pulling that, that handle. Uh, that, that handle is showing up in a really unfair fortunate looking part of his anatomy yes so then uh dr doom covers his entire kingdom in a plastidome in order to keep the avengers from escaping this is a problem because one of the children in the village needs an operation and has to get out of the plastidome to get an operation and dr doom doesn't care but the avengers do care so then the avengers go to doom's castle to fight him they have a fight for several pages. I am zimming through this issue because it is not very good. Sure. We cut to the Fantastic Four who are saying we should go help, but then they're told by the State Department, no, you can't help because it's an independent country. And so they go, okay, goodbye. <laughs> so, much, so much for helping. And uh, then cuts back to the Avengers who eventually defeat Dr. Doom and get the plastic cage lowered and... Of course, you can't really defeat Dr. Doom because he's head of state. You can't really do much to him. But they got the pass cage lowered. They know that with us gone, the Doom will stay open and the kid will get his leg fixed. And then they decide to go home. It is, there is very little going on in this issue. Plot-wise, it is a very lame pot with just sort of moving the figures into position and then moving them all back out again. Don Hack presumably is being required to do a lot of the plotting here by Lee and is Don Hack has never been a good plotter and not a very good penciler. So that is a gruesome combo for the 1960s Marvel Universe. And that is the end of this issue. Next issue, the Wasp flies again. So it'll be fun to get her back. Dr. Doom is very off model in the whole issue. Heck, uh, nope. Dr. Doom is always off model when anybody but Kirby is drawing him. Nobody but Kirby can get the hang of Doom. I'd say I always hate when Heck is doing the art, I always hate how tiny Scarlet Witch's waist is, not just from the front, but from the side. Like when you're looking at a woman from the side, you don't want her waist to pinch in a lot. That sort of implies that she's wearing too tight a corset or something. And the way, like, you just look at the first panel on page three, the degree to which she is sucking in her stomach painfully is hard to watch i absolutely agree about uh, about that as a tendency with heck uh he can make his women way too thin in the waist and then i end my notes by saying ugh my brain has shut down they fight dr doom and then get away
So that's how I wrapped up my notes. Anyway, what do you have to say about this issue? Well, I will also note that Dr. Doom has really little motivation to be doing what he's doing. Um, Indeed. His whole thing is like, I want to get the Fantastic Four. So I will go and destroy the Avengers to impress the Fantastic Four with how dangerous I am. And it's like, you know what okay. else impresses the Fantastic Four with how dangerous you are? Actually attacking the Fantastic Four. That also impresses them. I often find this frustrating in Marvel Comics that you'll get somebody using a technology that's just there to move the plot along, but you're like, wait. Go back. That was the technology you should be using. And indeed, here Doom is saying, here, at the screen of my worldwide scanner scope, there is no one I cannot spy upon, no place I cannot bring into view. I'm like, okay, well then, pretty much you've got every espionage agency in the entire world beat. (laughs) what are you doing here at one point uh when hawkeye is uh talking uh to captain america he's saying if you weren't old enough to be my grandpa i'd show you who ought to be the ramrod of this sewing circle uh and you know stanley likes using the word ramrod for many things but somehow putting ramrod together with sewing circle uh (laughs) just doesn't a mixed <laughs> metaphor, if ever there was one. <laughs> sort of short circuits my brain a little bit. It's interesting how the different Avengers have very different living quarters within the mansion. Uh, when we see Steve Rogers' living quarters, it looks like he's in a big like Oval Office-style room. It looks like a big circular room with, you know, libraries and, you know, looks like maybe some hi-fi equipment over there and lots of curtains and some like medieval type decorations on the wall, classical looking furniture. And then we see Wanda and Pietro's place. And it's this really modern thing with a uh, sunken living room and lots of mid-century modern furniture and things like that. I'd say what on, let's see, what page is this on? I got a question to ask you about how something's colored. On page four, panel two, Dick Ayers clearly indicated here that there was supposed to be some light being cast on Cap's face from the fire. It looks like he's supposed to have some side lighting that's supposed to look like it's yellow or something like that. On my copy, it is all just flesh colored. So those lines just look really weird. Uh, How about on yours? Yeah, all just flesh colored and those lines look really weird. Yeah, it's just like, hey, you know, that's that's a no brainer for a colorist right there. Also, I, you know, once again, I notice in this issue that we have a lot of people want to live under an autocrat. Yes. Right. At one point, the the villagers are like, how fortunate we are to have such a sovereign. His wisdom and his compassion are beyond all understanding. Someone else says, and how we have prospered under his reign. So, you know, and sometimes this is portrayed as, you know, oh, well, he actually is a good ruler to his people. He's just dangerous to people outside. But, you know, um, in recent years, I've started thinking of this more as, no, there are just some people who want that guy, you know? Putin seems quite popular in Russia, but then they realize they're wrong by the end of the issue. Like, he refuses to let the boy leave to get his operation, and uh, I think it's the same woman saying, he refused, how could he be so heartless, so unfeeling? And they're like, say no more, good woman, if the master should hear you, let us leave the village square, there's danger all about. So they, they come to realize that they've got actually a pretty crappy rule. Okay. Uh, but at one point, Captain America says something about, um, uh, I forget what the first part is, but not while Dr. Doom possesses even a fraction of his limitless power. 
well, if it's limitless, then dividing it by anything is still going to be limitless. Uh, I'm going all <laughs> full math nerd on you here. Although I guess in calculus, there it is, uh, it is clear that some infinities are larger than other infinities. So maybe that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, in terms of uh, heck and poor storytelling, he's particularly poor at doing superhero fight scenes, right? He yeah. just can't pull off stuff that uh, that looks like it makes sense on the page that you can figure out instantly what's going on. Lots of his stuff has to be explained by Stan. So there's one point where Captain America throws his shield at Doctor Doom, and Doctor Doom catches it in midair and throws it back. But you can't tell that's what happened. The only reason you know that's what happened is because Stanley explained what was going on. Hawkeye also uses a sneeze smog arrow <laughs> at the end, which, uh, and you just see, achoo! This little sneeze smog arrow will keep you busy till we're safely across the border. Gesundheit. Yeah, it's that's not. <laughs> I, I call shenanigans. That is not okay. Yes. Okay. All right. So I believe that brings us to the end of February 1966, does it not? Yes. The first soupy sales month, February 1966. <laughs> uh, that was a good month of comics. Yeah, I'm glad we're breaking up the books differently. So then we've got, with now, Ditko absolutely killing it on Spider-Man and Kirby and Sinat absolutely killing it on Fantastic Four. We have at least one great issue every episode, and it, I'm loving it. It's uh, We got some good stuff, and we got some okay stuff. Yep. I will co-sign on that. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. This was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm loving rereading these issues and uh, enjoying myself. And hopefully you are living it out there in podcast land. Yep. Uh, we always thank you for being there. Uh, always rating and reviewing us is a fantastic thing. Really helps us out. And uh, so, yeah, goodbye and stay safe till next time. Okay. Bye, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.